John Wesley, founder of the United Methodist Church, believed that it would begin in 1836. Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, predicted 1891. William Miller, a founder of the Adventist movement, calculated between March 21, 1843 and March 21, 1844. Hal Lindsey wrote several books arguing the 1980s. Author Harold Champ Camping identified September 6, 1994, and then May 21 to October 21, 2011. And most recently, Mark Blitz proclaimed September 28, 2015. So, what do all these people have in common? Each of them created their own version of the end-time clock to tell us how close we are to the return of Jesus Christ and God's consummate peace on earth. Some provided a rapture index, claiming that Christ's return was imminent. Actually, we just missed another deadline in September. But some people are already suggesting that the events in Paris are the beginning of the end. Others interpret each day's events in light of this morning's text from the Gospel of Mark, claiming some secret revelation about God's plans for the last days. Numerous publications and Internet sites offer formulas for interpreting every tragic event Every hurricane, every war, every famine, every tornado, every earthquake as part of God's plan for the second coming. Certainly, every generation has heard voices of those who boldly claim that they are privy to this insider knowledge about when Christ is returning. This is what makes the subject of the end times so attractive and at the same time, so treacherous. In this morning's text, Jesus and his disciples, who are mostly from small towns, not from the big city, are coming to the end of their time in Jerusalem and approaching the time of Jesus' passion. They continued to be awed by big things, temples, crowds, and important people, while Jesus continually teaches them about upside-down kingdoms of mustard seeds, children, and crosses. So as they leave the temple, they're overwhelmed by its grand architecture and its apparent stability and permanence. Close your eyes and imagine it as they experienced it. The structure of the second temple being rebuilt by King Herod took up one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. It was four times larger than the sacred Acropolis in Athens and twice as large as the Roman Forum. 
The courtyard was the size of six football fields put together. Huge retaining walls provided the large level surface for the temple complex because the land outside the walls dropped off so sharply. On the southeast corner, the drop was about 200 feet to the floor of the Kidron Valley. One of the stones in the western wall, now known as the Wailing Wall, is 40 feet in length. And archaeologists estimate that a still larger stone in the south wall weighed over 100 tons. The people of Israel believed that as long as the temple foundation stood strong, God's promises and protection would hold. It was of central importance as the location of God's presence with Israel. With such massive stones, who could imagine that they would ever fall again? Jesus' declaration that they would be thrown down was tantamount to blasphemy. We can measure the stunned reaction of the disciples by the fact that they didn't say a word until they'd left the temple in Jerusalem, gone down to the Kidron Valley to the east, and sat together in the Mount of Olives a large ridge from where they could see the eastern side of Jerusalem and the temple complex. This is the view on the front of this morning's bulletin. Here, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately when his prediction would come to pass. In cryptic response, Jesus warned them not to be led astray by others who would come after him, including some who would claim to speak with Jesus' own authority. Jesus tells the disciples not to be worried about wars or rumors of wars or earthquakes or famine, since these were signs of the beginning of the end. In his words, Jesus didn't answer the disciples' question directly. But instead, he set, about, set out a way for them to live that didn't focus all their attention on the destruction of the temple or the second coming. Consider this paraphrase of his message. Everyone needs to relax. Terrible things happen in life. I know it's scary but you should use it as the opportunity to serve others. Don't be led astray by leaders who offer easy and simplistic answers and blame other people for our problems. Pull together in the hard times. That's how you get through. I'll be with you too, and I'll show you the way. Things will get difficult, but stick together. And remember what is important in life. Love one another. Certainly, towering buildings are not supposed to crumble to the ground. Oceans are not supposed to leap out of their seabeds and flood miles inland, inundating cities. The ground is not supposed to shake. The sky is not supposed to form a funnel cloud and destroy towns and livelihoods. The stock market is too stable to crash 
and marriages are not intended to fall apart. Yet we all watched as the World Trade Towers collapsed and tsunamis flooded nations. Many of us experienced an earthquake and we watched the devastation in Haiti and Japan when the earth shook relentlessly. We felt the power of tornadoes and derechos and are horrified by the recent acts of terrorism in Beirut and Paris. We know the profound sense of loss and despair which accompanies these times, not to mention the feeling of loss of innocence. Things we once believed to be true that a towering structure would stand forever, that safety and security were possible, are no longer trustworthy. We've lost foundational beliefs upon which we've built our lives. No longer will we be able to step on the ground without wondering, if only for a moment, whether it's going to remain stable. No longer will we be able to look up into a darkening sky without wondering if a destructive storm is on the way or watch the news without anticipating shootings and tragedy. This list of calamities and the feeling of despair would have been familiar to Mark's community as well. Not only were they hearing Jesus' words from his time, but they were experiencing the actual destruction of the second temple, which they believed would not fall, and the persecution of Christians by the Romans in their own time. All of this doom and gloom wasn't theoretical. It was actual. So surely the end was near, right? But the history of God's people continued, and the church was born through the pain. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later. The, do, the news doesn't seem any less gloomy, and there is no less sense of catastrophe. All the wars and nations rising up against nations are real, even if not always personal. Does that mean that the end is coming now? So we wait, and we watch, and we seek to be faithful. I believe that we, like the disciples, can become so focused on discerning the signs of the times that we neglect our more important mission, to witness to the gospel today. Our focus must not be on the signs themselves, but, the, but rather on the one who is to come, the one who enables us to look up after such devastation and claim the certainty of blessing. We live in a time of already but not yet. The world as we know it in our time in human history, actually constitute the physical and spiritual kingdom of God, which reigns supreme right now. We are citizens of God's kingdom, empowered by the Spirit to be agents of redemptive change 
within the broken world in which we live today. As the Gospel of Mark proclaims, the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has already intervened in the world as we know it and is actively present, transforming this present age of history. There is an occasion for optimism, gladness, and joy. Not for apathy toward the world, but for peaceful, urgent, and untiring discipleship. As transformed citizens of the kingdom of God, we are called to worry less about some things and to take others a whole lot more seriously. We must consider carefully where to invest our time, energy, and money to encourage the restoration to wholeness of our neighbors in our community, in our nation, and around the world. As disciples, we are challenged to bear witness to the world and to rejoice with those whose prayer for wholeness are fulfilled. We are empowered by our God, who is not bound in buildings, but is present with us and cries with us to be helpers when scary things happen around us. Yet even as we serve, we are called to anticipate the consummation of God's promised end, to see it, to welcome it, and to usher it in like skilled midwives on call and always ready, right in the middle of pain and hurt, right in the midst of those places where Jesus went and will come again to make things right. Yes, things may seem to be falling apart, and anarchy will be seen, will seem to have been loosed on the world. Nevertheless, the center will hold, and we will discover that God gives us hope and faith to keep us steadfast in the face of the challenges to come even as we serve our risen Lord and await the birth of the new things that God is doing in our midst. May it be so. Amen.